Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of Romans, chapter 10, as uh, Leda has read for us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use ours outside there on the table. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that as our gift uh, to you today. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission. On behalf, again, of those of us who call Mission Church our church home, thank you guys for gathering with us here today. All right, so here we go. We're doing this sermon series called Never Fails, and over the last several years, probably 20-something years within our culture, there's been something that it's called postmodernism. Now, it's affected you, um, probably without you even knowing it. Um, a lot of times in my educational background and work, I spend a lot of time exploring that, looking at it, but it has also greatly affected um, Christiana- Christianity and the church. Um, in a lot of varieties and different ways. One of those ways is they begin to use this idea of deconstruction. The way that we see the world, the way that we see theology, the way that we see the Bible, all of these things, we need to deconstruct them again. Now the problem a lot of times with deconstruction is, is, is if you've ever rebuilt anything, you need to demolish something. But you also need to build something back. And so what was happening a lot of times is they were deconstructing our idea of church. They were deconstructing belief systems. They were deconstructing what had been orthodoxy. But the problem is, is what they were often rebuilding was far from the Bible. Now, a few years ago it was proclaimed, and I'm so thankful for this, that postmodernism, especially within the church, has died. And we all need to say amen. All right? That's a good thing, because the end outcome of a lot of what was happening in postmodernism, especially postmodernism within the church, was it had a tendency to always reconstruct liberalism. So a lot of these leading theologians, and I could give you a whole list of names today that one time a lot of us listened to. Okay? A lot of us read their books, and they deconstructed, and we were like, man, this is awesome. But a lot of those men and women today um, support, promote things like homosexual marriage. They, um, many of them also promote things like universalism. That means that everybody's going to be saved. That in deconstruction, what was rebuilt was far far from the biblical text. It's extremely dangerous, and simultaneously, it's extremely popular. Now, a lot of the preaching and teaching that comes forth from mission, a lot of times, has a tendency to sound very new, okay? And this is what I'm proposing to you, and there are lots of brothers and sisters throughout the globe, even in the American church. I could give you a list of names of, I believe, godly men that God is calling them and calling their churches back to a biblical view of what it means to follow after Jesus and what it means to be the church. And so a lot of times, whenever we kind of feel that um, uneasiness or that tension in the room when we're talking about these sorts of things, it's because of deconstruction. Things like we've been taught, like we talked a lot about last week, about the sinner's prayer and really looking at that from a biblical perspective. And that causes tension in us because, again, a lot of our faith has been built on such topics as these or beliefs as these. And yet our heartbeat, our desire, us and, and... Lots of other believers that, that this group, this movement is really growing in this understanding of that these things are happening within the church, especially in America. And yet when I compare these things, these new traditions, with the scripture, they seem to be very, very different, don't they? And so our wrestling is the rebuilding. I don't just want to deconstruct things. But I want to make sure that we're rebuilding things that are built on Scripture. All right? And so if you have this tension, I mean, this week, um, several conversations with with men in our church. um, One conversation was, well, man, it seems as though what we're talking about here is so different. Then how do we really know where to go from here? 
Um, I was talking to Mike Llewellyn this week several times, and we had several conversations, really encouraged by this because of his faith and how long he's been following Jesus, um, and he's hearing some of this stuff uh, and being challenged by it. And he was like, man, at my house, uh, Mike was like, um, at our mission community group, he's like, man, I'm really stewing over this. And it wasn't that he was saying he was angry or mad, but just that's a good thing. It's a wrestling with the text. It's a wrestling with the understanding. It's pushing into the table, not pushing away from it. As we deconstruct, man, some of those things are very, very difficult to realize, where are we getting this from? And yet, simultaneously, there's great joy in rebuilding it. There's this grassroots, underground movement that is happening within Christianity. Simultaneously, there's a leading away toward the prosperity gospel and all sorts of debaucherous things. But I want you to not lose hope. God is not done with the American church, okay? However, some major changes need to take place in it. A new reformation, a resurgence of biblical fellowship and biblical understanding of what it truly means to be the church. Today, man, we're going to explore some of those things. And you're probably going to have some deconstruction But hopefully by the end of this, God is going to begin the process of rebuilding us centered on the person and work of Jesus, because that's who we're ultimately here about. It's about getting back to the biblical Jesus and the biblical man that he has called us to do as the church and as the people of God. So the first thing that we want to look at here today, I'm going to focus on two major sections in this scripture that we read today in Romans chapter 10, where it says this, read along with me. In verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The first thing that if you have a listening guide in front of you, if you want to follow along with me, the first thing that I want you to understand is this today, is that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, let's get real heady here for a second. The term whoever in the original language means whoever. It really does. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where do we get that? Man, from this passage. Okay? But you got to understand the context of what is taking place here. God's desire from the beginning of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. He was calling his believers to multiply upon the face of the earth. Why? So that we could bestow upon them the gospel message of God, that it was all about God. God wanted Adam and Eve and their children to have multiple kids to populate the earth. Why? So they could know and understand the blessings of following after God. That God was God, that he was in control, that he was the great I Am. And we see from Genesis to Revelation this understanding that God has always been about multiplication, that he has always been about the races, that he has always been about the tribes, that he has always been about the nations. That God and his sovereign will and his divine pleasure and plan was that God was going to do this over the face of the earth. There would be great diversity and yet God would be the God of these people. I put some um, quotations from some addresses in the scripture on your listening guide there. Listen to what it says. Genesis 12, 3. This is God commissioning the Israel nation. He has elected them, he has chosen them, he has called them Israel, and now he has given them a responsibility, and this is what it says he wants them to do. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven, it says, 
All the heavens of the earth shall uh, remember and turn to God, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Galatians 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is never slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise in Matthew 24:14 and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come Revelation 5, 8 through 9 says, And we, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is speaking of Jesus. If you were slain and your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. This was the call of God. That he saved people and that he is going to save people. And yet he is simultaneously given a responsibility to his chosen people primarily or begin with the Jews. He calls them to do this. That you are going to minister to, share the gospel, point to the gospel of God through the nations. And the nations will be blessed for it. They'll be transformed. They'll be also welcomed into the throne room of God. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, if you read the Old Testament, this was a major issue for the Jews. They wanted God. But they did not want to obey His calling upon their lives to be a missionary group to the nations. If we had time this morning, we could go through the book of Jonah. This is it all that the book of Jonah is about. Jonah is a Jew. He is also a prophet of God. He is a missionary. He goes into foreign places. and God called him to go to the city called Nineveh, yet he refused to go. Why did he refuse to go? Because Jonah, ladies and gentlemen, was a racist. He hated the Ninevites. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. Um, they were considered to be the most, one of the most brutal people on the planet. He hated them because they were of a different tribe, ethnic group, race, nation than him. Okay, And he knows if he goes there and he proclaims the gospel of the Old Testament, what's going to happen? God's going to save them. And he doesn't want that to happen. A lot of times throughout the scripture, there is this major racial tension that is taking place within the scripture. The Jews, I cannot stress this to you enough, the Jews hate or hated the Gentiles. That means if you were not of Jewish descent, ladies and gentlemen, you were considered to be a dog by these people. If they went into a Gentile city, which they very rarely ever did because they hated to go there, and they would go back to Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen, they would often dust off their clothes, they would try to clean off their clothes before they would walk into Jerusalem. And you know why? Because they didn't want Gentile dust in their city. They wouldn't touch a Gentile. All right? They wouldn't use a Gentile fork or a spoon or a cup. They considered them to be the worst of all creation. A Jewish man would get up and pray in the morning, and this was the consistent prayer that he would pray. Thank you, Yahweh, for this. Not making me a woman, not making me a slave, and not making me a Gentile. The Jews hated them in a racist manner. They did not want God to save them. They did not want God to transform their lives. They refused, like in our civil rights times, that you know, they probably would not want to ride the bus 
of these people. They would not want to eat at the same restaurants as these people. They would not want to um, drink from the same water fountain. These were the people of God, and the people of God were the most racist people on the planet. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, what do we see with Jesus? Isn't this what begins to get Jesus into trouble? What do we see happening with Jesus? The complete opposite. He goes to their cities. He went into their homes. He ate with them. He celebrated women. He set the captives free. He befriended the Gentiles and the religious sects of the Jews hated Jesus for doing this. They made fun of him. They called him names. They labeled him. All of these sorts of things. Why? Because he was hanging out with a different race whom they believe should not at all be saved and hear about Yahweh. They wanted him to go to hell and yet Jesus came to take them to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no place in the kingdom of God for racism. None. Zero. Okay? Now, I understand that things have changed a little bit. All right? There's major tensions, not only between African Americans sometimes and um, uh, white people and all that sort of stuff, but even with immigration coming into our, our country. That there's a new low person on the totem pole. And it's Hispanic people. Alright? People are moving, even locally, in Bowling Green from areas because people like Bosnians have moved there. It's racism. This week, Leda was telling us a story in our mission community group where there's some um, new apartments that's going up in a county close to ours, and there are a lot of immigrants who live in Bowling Green, but they'll drive up to this county for work, and they're putting in, in this county, some low-income housing. And she got a call this lady. Uh, she got a call this week from a, an angry lady who lives in that county, close to those apartments. And she was asking, "How do we? Is there any way? Let's come up with a plan to keep these immigrants from moving to their county because we don't want them here." And I guarantee you, if you ask that lady if she's a Christian, you know what she'd probably say? "Yep." There is. No place for it. Jesus hates it. He combats it. He goes against it. And I want you to get this. We have a zero tolerance for racism, excuse me, unrepentant racism here at Mission. A zero tolerance for unrepentant racism. Okay? Can a racist come to church here? Yes, but he cannot stay, she cannot stay a racist. Because the gospel transforms that. You have got to stop looking at people's color, what language they speak, where they're from. Because heaven is going to be filled, as we've seen from these passages, with people from all of those races. Okay? We are the odd people out. Okay? And it's time that we begin to embrace this understanding of color. Is, is, is They are created in the image of God. Their dialect is created in the image of God. And the gospel is to go forth to all of these people everywhere. It is the command of God. It was to the Jew first and now it is to the church that we would be a blessing to whomever. Whomever, to the Jew and to the Gentile, God is not in heaven turning away people who are genuinely coming to him. There is not a people in this world who are authentically confessing him as Lord and believing that Jesus is Lord and asking him to truly come into their lives for God to stand up and say, no, you can't come. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're truly coming, 
with your heart, with your mind, with repentance, with faith, all of these things, God is not going to reject you. You know why I know this? Because we've been studying through the book of Romans, and the reason why you're coming to that point is because of all the things that God has done in his grace and his mercy before that point ever came. God is going to save people. He is going to save people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Now, the Jews were elected by God to be a blessing to the nations, to take the gospel to the nation, to live as missionaries, to live countercultural in such a way that it would cause people to become curious about the gospel. And yet, what do we see? They refuse to do it. They refuse to do it. This week, uh, Cameron was sharing with some of us that her and Evan have been working with little Eden, and because Eden is in that stage where everything is what? Mine. Mine. It's my house, my mama, my baby, my daddy. It's mine. And if you've had kids, you've gone through that, and some of them never leave that, which is really tough. All right? But it's this battling of mine, and yet, is that not what we have done? Are we not little babies in Christ becoming hoarders of the gospel, declaring that it is mine, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to burn in hell and let worms eat my flesh, so if I'm good, then why am I concerned about anything else that is happening around me? And yet, what is the call of God? Is the American church, is this the American church, is this Mission church, is this you? Like the Jews who have hoarded the word of God or like the New Testament church who sacrificially gave it away. They gave it away. Listen to these stats. Because I believe that the church has been given the same task as Israel. 42% of the world's population is unreached. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that you can go to 42% of the world's population, mention the name Jesus, and they do not know who you are talking about. And the thing is, most of us aren't concerned about that. That means like 2.9, I'm not a mathematician, but JP's here today, so he can check me on it. Around 2.9 billion people on this planet you can walk up to, talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel, and they do not have a clue of what you're talking about. And yet here in America, we've got Church Street. We all own of an average about three Bibles apiece. We have Christian Radio which is interesting conversation. We have Christian bookstores. We have MP3 players. I mean, the gospel, the preaching of the word, text, history, money is all at our fingertips and almost half of the world's population is dying and going to hell and has no idea who Jesus is. 16,897 different tribes of people in the world. 6,897 of them are unreached, meaning, again, they have never heard of them. Let me give you some European, uh, European stats, and this is just because I thought it was really interesting. 80% of French people have never read, held, or seen a Bible. of the people who live in the 1040 window, Google this when you get home today, 1040 window is kind of um, uh, China, uh, Asia, or East Asia, um, Central, um, uh, excuse me, the Middle East, and North in Africa, okay? That's called the 1040 window. In that, 90% of those people, 90%, have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're complaining about the air conditioning in our church, whether or not we have a building or not. And these people don't have the gospel. Over 250,000 villages, towns, and cities 
do not have an evangelical church in them. That means a church like ours. 250,000 villages, cities, and towns throughout this world who don't have a church in them. 4,000 churches open every year. I think that is awesome. Praise God for that. The downfall to that is 7,000 of them close throughout the world. John Piper once said, there are three kinds of Christians when it comes to world missions. You're going to be a zealous goer, you're going to be a zealous sender, or you're going to be disobedient. Now, which one are you? Which one are we as a congregation? Which one are we as a church? And so Paul continues on here and he says, these people, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How are they going to do that? Verse 14. But how are they going to call on Him who they have not reached? And not believed, excuse me. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? What he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Point number two, the thing that you need to get this morning. And I have a little bit of a bleeding heart over the last section of this sermon. God is going to save people. How is He going to do that? Through hearing and obeying the gospel by human proclamation. Through hearing and obeying the gospel by Human proclamation. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul says in this five times, how, 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 how? How are these people going to call out upon the name of Jesus to save them from their sin, to rescue them from hell itself, to restore their broken relationship with God? How are these people in your neighborhoods, in your cubicles, in these foreign countries, how are they going to come to the point where they are understanding the realization of the greatness of God and who they are and how much they need to be saved? How are they going to do that? Unless... You go. They won't. They won't do it. Unless we go. They won't. But when you do go, we can be confident today that God is going to save some. That He is going to save some. If we go, So, uh, to put it quite frankly, the the person that is in this foreign country today that does not have a relationship with Jesus and has never heard the gospel, this is the seriousness of the gospel call upon our lives, is those people go to hell. Unless the gospel goes there first. The redemptive plan of God is proclaimed amongst the nations with human proclamation, with the speech, with the presenting, with the proclaiming, with the yelling, screaming, whispering, with the writing, with the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I guess God could have just rolled back the heavenly curtains of the clouds, right? And peeked His head through and went, peekaboo, and that would have been awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, still people would not believe. You do get that even if he did it. And that seems, though, that it would be a lot easier if all of a sudden an eternal nose, mouth, and beard, of course, because God has a beard. I mean, Duck Dynasty guys have a beard. God has a beard. You know, check my logic. So in this, God scrolls back in the clouds, peeks through, and says, guess what? I am God. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, that is not what he has chosen to do. 
He has re- chosen to reveal His chosen people, the salvific work that He has done on this planet through your lips, through the proclamation of you speaking the Gospel. We see this in the Great Commission, don't we? Of Matthew 28, of making disciples. Jesus has lived this life, right? He's, he's lived here for 30-something odd years. He's, he's been perfect. He's been full-time ministry for the last three years. He dies upon a cross. He is buried into a borrowed tomb. He is risen on the third day. He spends, like I think, the next 40 days walking around on this planet. It's said that over 500 people at one time see Jesus. And he says, i got to go prepare a place for you. I've got to go set up a new place for you. But while I'm away, like a commander-in-chief standing over his soldiers, he gives them one last command, one final order, and that is to go and to make disciples, to evangelize, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he sent them, after he gave that command, he sent them to Jerusalem to pray. Now, flip back with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. And I want you to see what happens. Now, in the gospels, there are thousands of people who are following after Jesus. Thousands. By the time that we get to the ascension, ladies and gentlemen, into the upper room in the book of Acts, there's 120. But after Jesus gives them this command, and after they go to Jerusalem and pray, and they are becoming obedient, I want you to watch what happens in just the first nine chapters here. So Acts... Chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 says this in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus tells them, go there and pray. And when the Holy Spirit comes, when it lands upon you, then you're going to go out into this world. You're going to start with the Jews in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to the Jews in Judea and the Gentiles in those areas. Samarians, they were half Jews. okay, And then to the end of the world, that it was going to have a, a nucleus, a starting point, and from there it was going to spread out. And then see what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On this day, ladies and gentlemen, Peter stands up, Before these men, 120 brothers and sisters around him, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to evangelize in the known tongues of all those people who had gathered in Jerusalem that day. There were thousands upon thousands of people because it was one of the feasts for the Jews. And so there are tons of people from all over the globe that are in Jerusalem that day. And Peter calls them as God had told them to do, to call people to repentance and to come to Jesus. And what happens? 3,000 people that day. That's the only mass conversion, or besides the other ones in the Bible, that I truly believe happened. Because the Bible says it did. Acts 4 4. We go a little bit further, okay? They can keep going. They keep going to, from place to place, city to city, person to person. They would go to the synagogues, then they would go to the marketplace. They continue to preach this idea of Jesus is Lord, the cross, the resurrection, repent, come to faith. Follow after him. And in Acts 4 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So we go 120, we go 3,000 souls, we go 5,000 souls. You go another chapter, Acts chapter 5, verse 14 says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 6.1 And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
And a great many of the priests became obedient in or to the faith. Then we continue on in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. Numbers, for numbers' sake, is just numbers. But numbers for God's sake and people's sake are much more, ladies and gentlemen. The early church got it. They got it. They saw what they were commissioned to do. And they obeyed it. And God saved thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. See, God sends Jesus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sends the church. This has always been the flow of Scripture. It's been been the flow of even Christianity up until the last few hundred years. So the deconstruction comes is yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have come far from this understanding. And yet, more than anything else we see in Scripture, I'm of the conviction that the proclamation of the Gospel, the walking with someone in discipleship, okay, because evangelism, again, is, it's not the end, it, it is the beginning of walking alongside of someone in discipleship, teaching them, as the Great Commission says, all of things in both locally and globally. A church that does not think both locally and globally is struggling to be obedient to what we see in Scripture. It is a both and, not an either or. And we either are going to be faithful about going, faithful about sending, or faithfully disobedient. How is going, God going to cause the discipling to be made and the church to grow and to be multiplied through believers proclaiming the gospel of God with their mouths. This is not the role of a few. This is the role of those who have truly been saved. Michael Green's in Evangelism. I wish I could read this whole book to you. Michael Green's Evangelism in the Early Church. Let me read this quote to you. He's exploring. What do we see in evangelism and discipleship in the early church? And he paints a historical picture of these things, and this is what he says. The very fact that we are so imperfectly aware of how evangelism was carried out and by whom should make us sensitive to the possibility that the little man, the unknown ordinary man, the man who left no literary remains, was the prime agent in mission. The great mission of Christianity was the reality that it was accomplished by means of informal missionaries. The very disciples themselves were significantly laymen, devoid of formal theological training. Christianity was, from its inception, a lay movement. When we talk about laity, we don't see that word in Scripture, but it means not the paid professional. So, all of us, all of you, who are members of the body through the church. And so it continued for a remarkably long time. This must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and at wine shops, or for some of you, juice shops, on walks and around market stalls. Um, They went everywhere, I love this, gossiping the gospel. Now, we got some gossips in our church. Before I chase a squirrel, and it's a problem. The early church, they were gossipers. But it was about the gossip of the Scripture. It was about the Gospel. They did it naturally. 
enthusiastically and with conviction of those who were not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread nobly among the lower classes. One of the most important methods of spreading the gospel in antiquity was the use of homes. Hmm. It had positive advantages uh, and, and small numbers involved made for real interchange of views and informed discussion among the participants possible. <clears throat> this is where we got MCs from. Um, there was no artificial isolation of preacher from his hearers. There was no temptation for either the speaker or the heckler to play the gallery as uh, there was in a public place or open air meeting. Evangelism was the prerogative and duty of every church member. We have seen apostles and wandering prophets and nobles and paupers and intellectuals and fishermen all taking part enthusiastically in this primary task committed by Christ to His church. The ordinary people of the church saw it as their job. Christianity was supremely a lay movement spread by informal missionaries. The clergy of the church saw it as their responsibility. The spontaneous outreach of the total Christian community gave immense impetus to, uh, excuse me, um, I lost my word there, immense uh, understanding to the movement from the very outset, unless... There is a transformation of contemporary church life so that once again the task of evangelism is something uh, which is seen as, in, as to every baptized Christian and is backed up by the quality of living which outshines the best that unbelief can muster. We are unlikely to make much headway through these techniques or through modern techniques of evangelism. Oh, how far we have come. We have come so far from the biblical understanding of what it means to be the church and what it means to authentically be saved, an authentic disciple, a missionary who multiplies. And yet, guys, this was the very fiber, this was the very DNA of the early church. This was the biblical church. The early church was never a sit-and-soak congregation. It was a go-and-tell movement. It wasn't about just gathering in their homes and just loving on people, but it was loving on people and loving on the people who were yet to be there. It was inviting them into their home. It was inviting them to eat with them. It was inviting them uh, to sit down with them, to explore the gospel message of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be the church. And so when you start saying these things in churches nowadays, people start getting really kind of squirmishy because what are you talking about? See, if I ask, some of you guys have been a Christian a long time, and I've posed this question, posed this question, posed this question, and if I was to say the question, who are you discipling? Many of us would say no one. You're not walking with anyone. You're not gospel mentoring with anyone. And yet... This is the primary call of the church. So, can we not infer that we're not being the church? But we have created a celebrity preacher culture where the pressure of evangelism and discipleship is placed on those whom we call pastor. And ladies and gentlemen, is that responsibility upon them? Yes, as a member of the church. However, that does not allow you, as a follower of Jesus, to be disobedient in that call. Are some of us going to have special gifts of evangelism? Heck yeah. No doubt. Are some of us going to be called to foreign lands, like Jen and Jason Lewis? Yes. 
But God, in His sovereignty, has also placed you in Bowling Green, Kentucky to live out this idea. The early church saw this as a war. These people were in the trenches. They were dying for this, for the sharing of the gospel. They did not take up arms of swords and machine guns. They took up the sword of the Word of God and they swung it throughout the nations. We are here as believers, ladies and gentlemen, because there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women who have left a legacy before us that have got us here to this moment. And many of us can say that we are here because, for me, a man named Richard Carwell knocked on my door and began to walk alongside of me in the gospel, and it changed my life. This is the gospel call. It is the responsibility. God sent Jesus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sends the church. How is God causing the disciples to be made and the church to grow and to be multiplied? Through the believers proclaiming this truth. Yet, my heart's desire is that we would begin to understand and to create a culture of evangelism and discipleship. Please understand me. I don't think that you can separate evangelism and discipleship. People say, well, I'm an evangelist. What about follow-up? Ah, God does all that. And yet, He commissions you to do what? Make disciples. And then you'll hear people say, I'm all about discipleship. Well, who do you share the gospel with? I don't. I wait till they're saved. Then I disciple them. Both of those are faulty understandings of Scripture. It is both. It is taking a non-Christian. You can disciple a non-Christian before they become a disciple of Jesus. Did you know that? Who is that? Who is that for you? Simultaneously, we need to be coming next to. We have some new believers in our church. We have some young believers in our church. We have some yet to believe in our church. And we have some false believers in our church. And all of those people, we need to join up, come next to them. I want to be a part of a faithful faithful church that is radically different not to slander and belittle what our other brothers and sisters are doing but God has called this church to a specific ministry of engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking with them in discipleship a lot of times I feel really weird and y'all are like because you are that's okay I'm big boy real big but I'm trying to get smaller all right The only thing, because a lot of times I feel like a stranger in a foreign land. And the only thing that brings me hope is one, reading a bunch of theology and history books from dead guys. And then also simultaneously reading some modern guys who are really struggling with these things. And I read them and I just go, thank you, Lord. I get that encouragement. Thank you. Thank you, God. So I'm not crazy. I'm, I'm not trying to twist the Scripture. I'm not a, a false teacher. But we're, we're looking at these things and we're saying, man, when I, when I look at this idea of the mega mom mentality that has embraced Christendom, and I look at the Bible, they gathered, yes, in mass groups, and then they gathered in homes, and they flung open the doors to both, and they said, what every tribe, what every nation, whatever color, whatever you did last night, whoever you were with, whatever your care is, long hair, short hair, if, if you're transgender, if you're homosexual, if you're part of the KKK, whoever you are, you can come in and we will walk with you with the gospel. That is the heartbeat of Mission Church. That is our desire. Tim Keller said a church should not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. Every one of us. 
American church has become more about getting your needs met, programs for your kids, having a full band with lights, slick presentations. Now, these tools in and of themselves are not bad. They're not bad. But when they become and distract from the mission, then the church has lost its way. We've lost our way. In the words of Leon's Crump, pastor of Renovation Church in Atlanta, we've become more about keeping rather than sending. We've become more about pacifying our people who come more than mobilizing. We have become more about maintaining rather than multiplying. Is that not true? I would continue, those of you who study the church and look around, and if you were to fight your own personal preferences, that's what we have come... Ladies and gentlemen, please get this. God has not called us to be safe. Now, has He called you to protect your kids as best as possible? Yes, but He has not called you to be safe. He has not called us as a church to be safe, to come in and suck face with air conditioning, be worried about our comfortable chairs that we sit in, pack our Bibles in, smile, be filled up, go eat till we're gluttonous after church and have nothing to do with the spreading of gospel ground throughout the week. There's a major contention that is taking place if you were to compare the way that a lot of us are focusing and have been embraced in this idea of what church life is like and then getting back to the Scripture. Mission. We cannot and should not expect God to work in our lives, neighborhood, city, and world while we sit back in lazy boys at our church and home while the world around us is heading toward hell. Oh, how far we have come from the biblical understanding of following Jesus and being a church in our city for the church of the city. From the birth of Mission Church, we have stressed in this statement in our DNA that authentic Christians, and it's sad that we have to use the word authentic in front of Christianity anymore, but authentic Christians are disciples. And disciples are missionaries, and missionaries multiply. Who are you walking alongside with in faith? By God's grace, I can name you men who have walked alongside this guy. And by God's grace, I can name some of you whom God has allowed me to walk alongside of. And me and your wives both can give testimony service. Mm, all right? That God has done an amazing work in your life. And in my life too. That is the way it's done. That is the way it's biblically done. I cannot stress it enough. And here's what, here's what I know what's going to happen. I'm going to bark, yell, scream, get passionate. I wish I could cry, but I hate crying. And y'all know how ugly I get when I cry. I mean, I hate all that stuff. But this is what I know. Here's what, statistically, here's what I know. I'm going to yell, say this, point you to Scripture. I could take you all over the places in Scripture. You're going to go out of here and nothing's going to change. Let us pray with a passion before God and a hope before God that let us be different. Biblically, those whom were transformed by Jesus preached Jesus. When I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, when I was a college student, they used to have this little statement they would say all the time. It would say, win, build, sin. We're going to win them, we're going to build them, and then we're going to send them out. Then you repeat that. You win them. You share the gospel. You build them up. You disciple them. And you send them out. Mission Church, I want us to be as excited about how many we sent out, how many churches come from this church, how many missionaries go forth from this church as we are about the number of people who come sit here in these seats. I'm not talking about sending because they didn't like something that we did. I'm talking about the kind of sending that is from the gospel call. That's what we want to see happen. I get asked all the time, why did you name your church Mission Church? 
It's because we've gotten so far away from the biblical mission and understanding that I figured that at least if we put it on our name, it would be on our lips all the time. Where you go to church? Mission. Where's that? It's all over our city. Where you go to church? Mission. Why do you call it that? Because when I read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the church is supposed to be about the mission, and yet we're not being about it. And so for the congregation that I'm going to help lead, co-lead under the ultimate shepherd, the lead pastor of this church is Jesus. And there's a few knuckleheaded under-shepherds that we keep wondering why Jesus has called you know, Larry, Curly, and Moe to lead this place, but he has. But in that, we're going to continue to come back to this idea that is important for us to be about the mission. And what's that mission? Worship Jesus! Make disciples, plant churches. This is what we do. And if it's not what you do, man, there's a lot of great places, brothers and sisters in Christ, where you can go suck face with their air conditioning set in their pews. This is a hardworking, laborous field, calloused hand, sore from proclaiming the gospel of Christ, throat and mouth, church. And we may be small, but I pray that our impact for the glory of God is grand. Some of you need to quit your job, and you need to go live in a foreign country. Four and a half years ago, my yuppie sister and her yuppie husband never thought in a world, eternal amount of dreams that they would ever adopt a a Haitian boy. And I'm telling you what, when that boy gets here, better treat him good. JP and Colleen, I won't even tell you about their first date because it makes me embarrassed. (laughs) I wish I didn't know it. But from their first date to where they are now, we supported them yesterday in their adoption of also a Haitian boy. Oh, how far we have come. Some of you need to use those big houses you got that are collecting dust and put kids in them. And maybe they're not your same color. Maybe they are. Maybe they're like cash. Because those kind of kids are the least likely to be adopted. It's hard enough to become a child of a parent or to give birth to a child that has these sorts of needs. It's another thing. And man, I know stories of people who have adopted like 20 special needs kids. It's calling. Some of you went to school for all sorts of things. And you're going to be schooled in the gospel of proclaiming to the ends of the earth. And it needs to start as God prepares you. It needs to start at your school. It needs to start at Best Buy. It needs to start at Logan Aluminum. It needs to start wherever you work. It needs to start in your neighborhoods. That's why mission communities meet in neighborhoods, and that's why we place you. If you live in that neighborhood, it doesn't make any sense for you to go somewhere else when you've got a mission community group meeting right there. And the goal of those groups is to open the doors and say, Come to this place. Get to Jesus. It's only about us as far as we can give it all away. Because in the giving of all it away, you realize it is ultimately about Jesus, and yet we're just, man, we're getting fat Americans on the gospel. We're obese on this stuff, and God is saying, quit absorbing it all. You've got to be wrung out for the sake of the gospel. Church, it is better for us to trip over all of our words and stutter and to not be able to answer all of their questions than it is for us not to go at all. It is not about having a perfect speech. As we've learned, God is sovereign. And if he can use Moses, who would believe to have some sort of speech issue, then he can definitely use you. I, stump, I make up words every Sunday. And God still has called me to do this. It's God is sovereign. He can use that. We won't share because of fear. And I'm afraid that we will drive them away. Isn't that what we say a lot of times? I don't want to share because I'm afraid that I will drive them away from our relationship, our friendship. Ladies and gentlemen, they're already away. 
They're already away. We're fear of losing the friendship. Are you really friends with him if you don't share? Early believers had to be commanded. This is from Tom Rainer. This will get you. Early believers had to be commanded not to evangelize. Modern believers have to be urged to speak. The mission will not fail. Why? Because Jesus says that He will build His church. Ladies and gentlemen, a few weeks ago I gave you the task. I gave you the task. I gave you little cards. I said, I want you to write the names of people who are lost and unknown without Jesus. I gave you a card. I want you to write their same names on that. I want you to put that in the Bible. And for most of you, it's become a thing that you have put your wadded up gum in or a bookmark. And yet those people are still lost. And we've seen in the book of Romans that God has called us to have a heart for the lost, to pray for the lost, to earnestly grieve that they are not without God. And yet we are seeing in this passage that He not calls us just to sit in a room and pray about it, that there comes a point in time that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it. Speak it. I'm working on a tool that hopefully I will have for you next week on on just a a little gospel script or uh, some way to kind of formulate the gospel and tell the gospel story because this is what I know. There's 139 names on this piece of paper that are your friends and family members who do not have a relationship with Jesus. You know them. Pray for them. But I'm, I'm telling you, more than having pasta dishes with them, talking about the weather or Pawpaw's hangnail or whatever, proclaim the gospel. Share the gospel with them. I'm not embarrassed about Mission Church. I thank God for Mission Church. I thank God that this is the place that He has called me. I pray that I get to spend the rest of my life right here yelling and screaming at you, coming alongside of you, having you yell and scream at me too, because you do that. Um, And so we work together in sharpening of one another for the sake of the gospel. And my my heart's desire is to be a part of something that I've up until this point in 36 years of living have never got to see. And that's a church that is sold out for Jesus where everyone in it understands I am a missionary for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, that He has placed me in this place. He has placed me in this neighborhood. He has placed me in this city. He has placed me in this land. He has placed me here to be a beacon and a lighthouse for the sake of the gospel, to transform them. If they deny you, ladies and gentlemen, if you become unpopular, may you be so humble to realize they are not truly denying you. They are denying Jesus. They're denying Him inside your weekly You've been given two mission invite cards. We have tons of these. We've got like 400 and something of them. We made those so that you could give those. There are people on this list who are de-churched, unchurched, don't have a church home. If they live locally, invite them. If you have a neighbor, invite them. Those cards are invitations to your mission community group, to your church. And I'm hoping as we begin to take small steps and baby steps that God is going to begin to do a great and mighty work for the sake of the gospel in our hearts and in our land as we worship Jesus, make disciples, and plant churches. This is what He's called us to. This is who we are. That's why we encourage adoptions. That's why we encourage foster care. That's why we encourage mission trips. That's why we encourage Jen and Jason. I mean, we're sending those brothers M&Ms and board games because that's stuff they can't get over there. And they use M&Ms and board games to have people to come to their house so that they can share the gospel with them. Maybe we need to start playing some M&Ms and board games in these neighborhoods that we live in with people in our neighborhood so that we can share the gospel with them. What's it going to be? Biblical church? Diluted church. And whether this church is 10 or 10,000, 
we're going to yell and bark and proclaim this same message. I've heard all kinds of numbers, but even in this small town of Bowling Green, Kentucky, that there are upwards of of 90-something thousand people that are unchurched. That's hard for us to believe with how many people or how many churches there are here. So don't tell me there's not a job to do. There's much work to be done. May we come to Jesus in this time of repentance, this time of prayer, this time of communion. May we accept the challenge of going forth from this day engaging people and praying daily. God, are you calling me from here? Are you calling me to a foreign land? Are you you calling me? I want to be willing to go. And until then, God's saying, I've planted you right here right now. So go here. If you would, stand with me.